HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good morning, Heritage Radio listeners. On today's show, I welcome Chef Abram Bissell. He's the executive chef of The Modern, a two-Michelin-starred restaurant located at the Museum of Modern Art. It has earned three stars from the New York Times, the Grand Award from Wine Spectator, and four James Beard Awards, including Best New Restaurant, Outstanding Wine Service, and Outstanding Restaurant Design. He was previously the CDC at The Nomad, and he was the executive sous at 11 Madison Park. Chef, Welcome to the program. Thanks. Great to be here. So you were born in the Florida Keys, which are a string of tropical islands just south of Florida. They're known for fishing, scuba diving, uh, relaxing. It's a big vacation spot. Um, How was your childhood there? Were you living in a more suburban setting or were you sort of uh, further out into nature, sort of uh, removed from sort of like traditional suburban block living? Um, have you ever been there? I have never been to the Keys. So I think it's kind of, uh, it's interesting to describe if you've never, if you've never actually been there. Um, it's, they're these tiny little islands. Uh, you can walk from the ocean to the bay in, you know, about 90 seconds. Uh, there's one road in and out. Uh, these are really tiny islands. It's, uh, like you said, it's a strong fishing community. Um, growing up there, I mean, I had a boat before I had a car. You know, that's how you got around, um, very tourist focused. So when, you know, when you'd hit that Friday afternoon or Saturday morning, you weren't getting anywhere in a car. You weren't, you couldn't get up and down roads. So, you know, growing up, like I, I had a small skiff, you know, with a little 15 horsepower and you just hop in it and you get around, you know, from edge to edge on the islands. Um, grew up fishing. Uh, you know, what we recall growing up was conks. You're familiar with conch, like the big shell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it, it spoke to two different things. Like growing up in the Keys, you were exposed to so much sun and like leathery skin was like one part of it. And the other part was this was, uh, you know, you think about the Bahamas, you think about where these, uh, these, these shellfish came from. And the Keys, before it became an overfished area, 
you would just go out your back door and all of this seafood just existed right there in the rock. So um, an original conch house, you would open a hatch on the bottom of your floor and you'd be over the water, you know, when the water would come up and you'd have lobster traps and crab traps uh, and pull conch shells up and fish right from your living room. How did you learn how to fish just by watching your parents or is it sort of like, you know, you turn five years old and you get a fishing, like a starter kit fishing pole or something like that? Yeah, I guess sort of like that. I mean, you grow up, um, I mean, like I never had a winter coat, you know, growing up, you didn't wear shoes. That was just part of what, what the environment was growing up. Um, so from a pretty young age, yeah, you're running out to a dock and you're, you know, you're wrapping a string around a stick, you know, a yo-yo was like the starting point mm-hmm. and you're dropping it in, you're catching some little snapper. And as you get a little bit bigger, you might, you know, get into fly fishing, you know, or you might want to start to go offshore fishing and it just kind of grows on you little by little. Um, but there's, there's always that mentor, right? I think it's similar to food in a lot of ways, but there's always a mentor. There's always a, an older friend or an older, uh, you know, brothers, you know, your, your friend's brother that was a fisherman or a father that takes you out. And, you know, you just pick up little skills here and there. I wasn't a very good fisherman. I just want to say that I (laughs) I wasn't very good at it. Uh, I love the ocean, but I wasn't very good at fishing. It sounds like you were free to adventure. You were given some leeway at a young age. You know, you're talking about running around without shoes on. You're going from the bay to the ocean. You've got a boat at a young age. Tell me about uh, your parents. How um, how do they they raise you? What type of house was it like? Uh, was it was it strict or was it um, pretty free? Actually, it was it was pretty strict. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents were very strict. Um, my parents were, you know, they were, they were hippies. You know, they, they came up in the 60s. They actually both lived here in New York. My, my mother was raised in Sheepshead Bay. My, grandfather, my, my father was from the Bronx. Um, and they grew, uh, as they grew up, they started sailing quite a bit. And they went back and forth of the seasons. So they spent, you know, summers and springs here in New York. And then they would get on their sailboat and they would sail down south every winter and spend the winters in the Keys. Um, and when my older sister was born, they happened to be in the Florida Keys and they needed to get off of the boat. Um, so they just kind of landed there. Uh, but they were very strict. But grow- I mean, growing up in that kind of an environment, you are very free to kind of do what you want. I mean, there's not a lot of, uh, you know, there's no mainland. You know, it, the, it took us about two hours to get to the closest mall. Um, we didn't grow up going to um, a, regular, uh, a regular supermarket. Those just weren't there. That wasn't how you lived. Um, so it was, it was very unique. Um, my, my parents, my mother was from an Italian Jewish household. Um, my father was adopted, but his, uh, you know, his family was Balinesian. So it was a very unique, uh, unique family. Cool. Let's talk about what was being served in the house then. If you've got some Jewish, some Italian cuisine, and then maybe potentially cooking with the flavors of Bali, I don't know. Well, um, we didn't actually cook with the flavors of Bali, but yeah, we, we did. We ate pretty much everything. But I think what was really unique about my childhood, and I, I guess I didn't see it as unique until I left, um, until I left the Keys, was uh, we ate what was natural. And I think now we, we call that, you know, we think of it as organic, right? That's Mm -hmm. how we like to eat. But that's, that's the way I grew up. We didn't, um, we didn't go to the grocery store and buy groceries. We went to a Mm -hmm. co-op. We went to a farm. We shared what we had as a community. Um, and that's what we ate. Um, we ate mostly vegetarian growing up. Um, that was what we had. So that's what we ate. 
Um, we obviously ate a lot of seafood because that was readily available to us. But red meat was not really no. was a luxury item? It or? was a luxury item, and I think that's interesting because my, my grandmother being Italian, uh, same thing where even here in a city where my mother grew up, uh, red meat, meat was a luxury item. It was for rich. You know, it wasn't something that was something you regularly ate. So yeah. um, when it was there, it was for a special occasion. So did you grow up eating... Uh, when you say you know you work you were with farms and co-ops and stuff, what was a what's a traditional Floridian meal like in the Keys growing up? Is it like rice and fish on top? Is it just roasted vegetables? Like, well, we ate, I mean we ate a lot, yeah we ate a lot of a lot of things that anyone else would. My mom baked all the bread that we ate in our house, um, and there was no machine. You know, she needed it and she baked it. We ate a lot of beans. Um, you know, things that grew well in that in that environment. Um, I remember a lot of carrots as a kid. I don't know if that's strange, but a lot of carrots. Um, and then we did eat. I mean, we ate a lot of uh, very Italian-focused food, pasta fagiol. Um, we did have Sunday gravy, you know, at least once a month every Sunday. And that was part of uh, part of growing up. But, yeah, fish was a big part as well. A lot of times fish was fried or it was grilled um, or baked. It was always very simple. Uh, but most of what we ate was vegetables. What did your parents do down in the Keys? They they stayed there. They made their life there, right? Yeah. Like you pretty consistently grew up there for your childhood? Yeah. What did they do down in the Keys? Um, Were they well, involved in tourism or? Uh, no, neither one of them. My mom uh, my mom is a nurse. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's been a hospice in VNA for 45 years. Actually, incredible, wow. incredible woman. Um, so she, uh, growing up, my mom was a midwife. Uh, so she was bringing bringing the children into the world. And for a lot of her life now, she's been on the other side. She's been taking care of elderly as they're, um, as they're at the other end of their life. Uh, my father was a diesel mechanic. So uh, I think that's how we got out on the water. We didn't have a lot of money. It wasn't, you know, we weren't wealthy, we weren't buying boats. So it was always about, can you find something? Can you make it into what you want it to be? Can you, can you build it with your hands? Uh, make it something that works. Tell me about how you got interested in food. I know that you ended up uh, going to culinary school 1,500 miles away from where you grew up. You decided to go to the other end of the U.S. isolation, and you you went all the way to Vermont, which is sort of the opposite extreme, right? Um, Absolutely true. Fairly removed from what we would consider like mainstream America, and Vermont has their own way of thinking just like Florida does. First off, how did you get into food? And then also, how did you make the decision to end up in Montpelier at the uh, New England Culinary Institute? So um, I, I said this. I wasn't a very good fisherman. Let's just say that. So where I grew up uh, in the Keys, there wasn't a lot of other options to do things. So either you really loved fishing um, and you developed that skill set and maybe became uh, you know a, a, a junior captain and you would start to do some boat hand stuff on some commercial touristy things. Uh, or you you cooked you cooked the fish as it came in, and um, I had some close family friends that had a small cafe. Uh, it was something that I really enjoyed doing. I needed work at the same time, so uh, you know I started picking up some odds and ends of work. Uh, one of the things that I got into was scuba diving, uh, packing live tropical fish. Uh, so I would do that a couple days a week, and then I'd also pick up some odds and ends, you know, bussing tables uh, in cafes and. You know, I, I really started gravitating towards, you know, I remember being, you know, 12, working in a cafe on Saturdays and Sundays, um, and it's breakfast service, and there's only this one cook, you know, and he's sweating, and he's cracking eggs, and he's, fire, you know, pancakes and all this stuff all over the place, 
And um, you know, I kind of I got into it. Um, it seemed really interesting to me. I liked the type of people that were the cooks. And I preferred, I think, that interaction in the kitchen more than what I was getting you know, as a busboy and talking to guests. I really preferred being back in that, I guess, that protected environment. Um, so it kind of it stuck. I think what really took for me with food was, was baking in the beginning. I think especially my mom uh, baking all of our bread. Uh, you know, anything that we ever had, like a birthday cake, we never would have gone to the store to buy it. It was something that was, you know, a labor of love. It was part of what a birthday was about was the process of making this, uh, this cake for a birthday. So some of, the, some of the first things I did in cooking was baking cakes. Um, family friends asked if someone could help make a large cake for a big birthday party. Um, I remember one of the first cakes I made was this huge dinosaur, you know, for a, for a kid's birthday party. And I enjoyed the way that it, it made other people feel. And I think I also really enjoyed the process, the precision of baking, um, how everything had to be very exact. And at the same time, I got to be in this really great, cool environment in the kitchen where there was energy and um, oh, everyone fed off of each other. Uh, and there was so much to learn. There was so much to grow. So, you know, that's how I, I, I started out in my career anyway. I started traveling quite a bit. Uh, when I was 20, I decided to leave the Florida Keys. I knew that I needed to do something else. Uh, I kind of traveled up the East Coast. I lived in North Carolina for three years um, and then decided culinary school was was the right move for me. At that time, I was fully moving towards pastry. I had no interest in savory at, at all. I wanted a baking career. Um, but New England Culinary Institute didn't offer a strictly baking career. Uh, so I, I wound up getting involved in savory as well. Uh, why Vermont? I, I guess it was why not? You uh -huh. know, I wanted to I wanted to experience the United States. I think a lot of a lot of cooks, you know, they wanna they want to experience Europe. They want to travel in Italy. For me it was about um, I'm an American. I wanted to see what American food was about. I wanted to experience American culture and I wanted to live everywhere in the United States. Uh, so why not take that big leap? And, you know, I grew up at, um, you know, zero inches above water level, you know, like when we get two inches of rain, everything flooded and I moved to a thousand, right? A thousand feet above ocean level. So, you know, why not go all the way, I guess. Did you embrace that Vermont lifestyle? Like you grew up not wearing a coat and then you went to somewhere where it's pretty cold, like nine, 10 months out of the yeah, year in brutal. Vermont. It's pretty brutally cold. Uh, from a mental standpoint, you had already been away from your family for some time. So you're probably okay on your own, but how did that feel to be in school in Vermont doing savory work? Um, I mean, it was incredible. Uh, I found Vermont was actually very similar to how I grew up. I think that, you know, it took a little bit of time, but, you know, about six months into living there, uh, starting to get a little bit more into the culture um, of the city of, of Vermont. It was very similar. It was a lot of a lot of people that were like my parents. You know, they were uh, they were people who made their own wine and they grew their own food and they cared about where food was coming from and they cared about um, how their children were raised and what they were exposed to. And that was very similar to what my upbringing was um, going to, you know, these little art meets, you know, that would just happen on weekends. The weather was completely different. Yeah, it took a lot. Uh, I remember my first care package from my mom with, you know, a huge winter coat with this big hood and a pair of rubber boots. I still have the boots. I can't stand wearing them. Um, but that was, that was culturally a big shift. I didn't drive. I couldn't. 
I knew how to drive, but I couldn't drive in the weather. So, you know, I had to rely a lot on friends and people that had exposure to, to that kind of harsh weather. So after so much time removed from city life, city life grabs you and you end up moving to, is Boston your first sort of real kitchen experience after culinary school? Yeah. um, Well, actually during culinary school, um, I had a friend in culinary school who said, hey, why don't you come in, you know, crash with me. I'm going to go to Boston for six months. And um, the same kind of attitude. I just, I wanted to experience things. Um, I loved Boston, an incredible city, like really, really cool city. Where did you end up? Uh, I was at Lespalier was the restaurant. What type of place is that? Uh, Lespalier is a, it's a fine dining restaurant. Um, I worked there. Uh, I don't know if any of the listeners, listeners will know Lespalier, but it was back when it was on Gloucester. Uh, which was over in the Back Bay area. And it was a townhouse. It had three different floors, beautiful dining rooms, um, very classic uh, French, um, very refined, um, very tiny kitchen, which I think I really took to. I liked this small kitchen environment. Uh, It was a good learning place for me where I was getting hands-on with the chef. I was really hands-on with the other cooks in the kitchen. Um, And overall, the city, I mean... I loved it. I really enjoyed being in Boston. I liked the community of the restaurants. uh, And I think it was the first time that I really felt that a city could be part of what pushes you forward. A city is part of the energy that you feed on as a, as a chef and as a cook uh, that, that forces you to constantly evolve and constantly grow. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about New York city. I love New York here on the line. Stick with us. the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. What better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher. Or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. Are you a Heritage Radio Network member yet? Membership not only supports the production and broadcast of this show, but also comes with some perks. 
All current members are invited to our new monthly happy hour series, Books and Brews. Join us on April 12th at Three's Outpost at Franklin and Kent in Greenpoint with host of Eat Your Words, Kathy Irway, and her new book, The Food of Taiwan. Meet other members, snag a signed copy of The Food of Taiwan, and enjoy some beer from Heritage Radio Network business member Three's Brewing. Donate at heritageradionetwork.org forward slash donate to get your exclusive invite today. We're back with Chef Abram Bissell. He's the executive chef of The Modern, a two-Michelin-starred restaurant located at the Museum of Modern Art. He's worked at some incredible restaurants in New York before taking over the kitchen at The Modern. And I want to start off by talking about how you ended up at 11 Madison Park. Um, You were uh, coming to New York from Boston. Uh, Many people know 11 Madison Park, but for those that are listening that have not heard of it for some reason or another, (laughs) can you give just a little bit of background about the restaurant, working with um, Chef Daniel Hum, and how you started there? Yeah. Um, Well, actually, I was a cook at The Modern, when I so I moved actually from California to to New York. Um, And at that time, you know, I didn't know a lot about New York, um, and I had an opportunity to move into my grandparents' apartment in Sheepshead Bay. And in my head, you know, that wasn't that far from the city. So, you know, why not? Um, And I got in contact with someone I went to culinary school with, and they were opening this new restaurant in New York, the Modern, um, and I was looking for a job. So he hooked me up with with an entry-level position at the Modern. It was a brand-new restaurant, so this is about 12 years ago now. Um, And I was at the Modern for about 18 months, and um, I was looking for some opportunity for growth. 11 Madison Park was a restaurant that existed in the same company, Union Square Hospitality Group, um, and just uh, just got a new chef, Daniel Hume. Um, So I was really interested in what was going on. Um, I did some research on Daniel and decided that uh, that was a great opportunity for me to keep growing. So I actually just simply transferred down from the Modern to 11 Madison Park. Um, And people that don't know 11 Madison Park... Uh, you know, this is now about 10 years ago. Um, it was a bistro, a huge bistro, uh, over 200 seats. Uh, we were uh, cover count. We were doing like like 300 covers on a Saturday night and there was a grill and there were steak frites and it was nothing like what the restaurant is now. Um, but there was this uh, this incredible energy from um, both uh, Daniel Hume and Will Gadara, the general manager, now owner of 11 Madison Park, um, and a strong desire to do something great in the industry. Uh, and that was, um, it was inspiring to be part of a team that wasn't what they wanted to be, but knew that it was possible to accomplish something great. Um, and they would take what they had as a tool, this restaurant, um, and they would build something incredible in that space. So that restaurant transitioned to fine dining. It yeah. did not start off that way. Yes. So when you were there, what uh, what station did you work, and what kind of things were coming off that station? Um, I all I worked all of the stations over time, mm-hmm. um, but I was actually hired in. I was uh, um, I came onto the team as meat roast, um, and you know there was there were the, these dishes that we now. I think most people now understand are, are kind of the, the staples of Daniel Hume's cuisine that he was just bringing to that restaurant, uh, a dry-aged duck rubbed with honey, lavender, Szechuan peppercorns. Um, you know, these were brand new dishes for that restaurant. There were things that were just coming on, but they were things that were, um, that were to be the future great dishes of the restaurant. What was the kitchen style like at at EMP at that time. Oh, it was chaos. Okay. You know, it, was, it was absolute chaos. I mean, it was, um, it was transitioning from 
Uh, it, was, it was a new chef. Um, so there were some employees that maybe had been there for seven, eight years and worked under a different chef that had a different idea of what their job was, what they should be doing every day. Uh, and then there were some new employees. We didn't know what we were doing. You know, we didn't know where we were going with with the restaurant. Um, and Daniel, I mean, Daniel was there every day, 9 a.m. in the morning until the last plates walked every night, uh, coaching, teaching, driving uh, the tempo of the kitchen and continuing to push it forward every single day. What were some of the most exciting dishes that you were seeing that were transitioning the restaurant? You mentioned the duck, but to go from a bistro mm -hmm. doing 300 covers to doing what they exist as today, yeah. you were like, you, you were in the middle of it. So perhaps maybe you couldn't even see it at the time, but looking back, was there a specific turning point, maybe a, a change in either service style or how things were orienting themselves in the kitchen that you thought, oh, wow, these guys are taking us in a totally different direction? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it was both physical and, you know, a, a lot of it was what was happening with the people in the space. Um, so, you know, I think that it was constantly a movement. Every time um, a new employee came on with a new skill set, you could see a little bit of growth in um, in stylistically and in the quality of what was being put out. But also there were these physical renovations of the space that constantly happened. Uh, so, you know, closing for a week and removing seats from the dining room, bringing new chairs in, changing service style. Um, those were constant evolutions that were happening. Uh, every single time one of those things happened, the restaurant got a little bit better. Uh, the clientele shifted. You know, as, as a different clientele was interested in the restaurant, the restaurant grew a little bit. You know, it got a little bit better. Uh, so it was kind of a constant growth. Uh, it was slow. You know, it took years, um, six years, you know, before the restaurant was really recognized for what we aspired to be. It's interesting because now people look at EMP and it seems that people that not necessarily work in restaurants, they think that a fine dining, multiple Michelin starred restaurant just appears out of the blue somewhere. But as you said, it takes years and years and years of work. I'm curious how you applied that to opening the Nomad. Uh, you were at a place that was changing, it was evolving, it was growing, but by the time you went to the Nomad, expectations were very, very high. And you pretty much needed to be perfect from day one at the Nomad. Yeah. What was that experience like, going and opening up a new place and, um, and having sort of like all eyes on you? Uh, well, I mean, I think that what we had as a luxury was we already had a really great foundation uh, that was 11 Madison Park. So we had a great foundation to, I guess, to borrow skill sets in people, right? So we could we could pick um, key key leaders from 11 Madison Park to be part of Nomad Opening. The other gift we had was we had time. So 11 Madison Park uh, was an operating restaurant, um, and Daniel had to step into something that was that was already operating and continue to operate it through it. With Nomad, we had two years to to think. Uh, to be deliberate about what we were doing, um, to think through all of the processes that would happen, um, and also to train. So we had the opportunity to open the doors on the very first day, uh, already knowing what we were going to do and make sure that we were doing it the exact right way. I think uh, something interesting to hear about would be the hotel mm. versus a standalone restaurant. There's a lot of 
moving pieces in a hotel that you have yeah. to interact with when you are the food service provider. Uh, does uh, when you started your group was? Can you talk about how many? points of sale there were in the hotel there were too many there were bars there were there were too many there was a lot yeah. of places to sit and order right yeah. um how did that impact your day-to-day were you were you running overseeing everything what yeah. what sort of what was your role once the nomad opened up its doors yes yeah, so that was one of the biggest challenges of opening nomad was that everything had to open at once so right so it wasn't like most restaurants you can you know we call it a soft opening in restaurants where you can open you know maybe one of your outlets or you open just a couple of the seats at a time um with Nomad the hotel opened the restaurant opened the bar opened room service opened all at the exact same time um so I know this is completely unhealthy, Sounds but I, terrifying. Oh, it was awful. Yeah, it wasn't that bad. But I did wind up living there for the first six months. So wow. um, my day was was, uh, you know, we never we never went outside, you know, me and, and kind of the key leaders. So, you know, you would get up in the morning, you know, about 4 a.m. and go downstairs and get breakfast started and do breakfast service. And then I'd go up to one of the hotel rooms and I'd take a nap for an hour and come back down and then it'd be lunch service and then try to take a break and sit in the office and close my eyes or maybe chug a couple Red Bulls and then do dinner service and then go take a four hour nap and come back down at 2 a.m. to check on overnight room service. So kind of the day just kind of blended from one end to the other. Um, It was really, really intense. Um, The friendships that were formed in that process, unreal. You know, I mean, it, as much as nobody was going to die, it's kind of like, you know, like battle, like war, you know, like how much can you push yourself? What are you capable of doing? How how little sleep can you survive on uh, every single day? Um, no, yeah. no one would accuse you of obviously not working hard and putting everything into it. And, um, you know, a lot of people like to lead by example. You know, I would never tell you to do something that I wouldn't do myself. And obviously you're there in the trenches with them all the time. I'm curious about what else did you develop as a leadership style besides, um, besides showing by doing what other traits did you kind of develop or borrow from Daniel or someone else that mentored you that you then had the ability to put into effect? I mean, I think you're, you, you just said the one that's still the most important to me. If I won't do it myself, then I can't ask somebody else to do it. Um, but you know, leading by example is a really important um, trait, I think, especially in a kitchen. Um, we learn in kitchens by being shown, right? I, I always say, like, uh, you, you can't learn to cook from a cookbook. It just doesn't work. You need to be shown how something is going to be done. And with, with Nomad, I think the reason it opened so successfully was because we were willing as leaders to do everything that needed to be done, no matter what it was, whether it was unclogging a drain or washing dishes or cooking a burger for room service during overnight because the cook never showed up, you know, or scrubbing the stoves at the end of the night, whatever it was, we were willing to do it. And um, I think that that set uh, it set an example to the rest of the team. Uh, But also, I think it showed us what was what was possible. Um, And I think without pushing ourselves that hard, we never really would have would have known that. Um, But I mean, other things that I learned in that, I think, you know, personalities are so important, linking up personalities that work well together, balance each other in a really well, uh, a really great way. Uh, What you don't need in a kitchen is a whole bunch of people that think, right? You need a group of people that do 
and just run and get things done. And then you do need a, pe- a group of people that think and organize and make lists. And pairing those people up the right way uh, is really successful. Having too many people that just kind of run around and do all the time and don't make lists, nothing actually gets done. So linking up good personalities was another, uh, I guess, psychology is what I learned. Once things evened out a little bit at the Nomad and maybe hopefully you weren't picking up burgers on overnights and scrubbing ovens and things like that, uh, was there an aspect of the job that you felt like you were not prepared to take on beyond the just overarching leadership role? Were there things that uh, once you really dug in, um, you hadn't ever done before? Yeah, I mean, most of it I hadn't done before. Um, we talked a little bit about it being a hotel. Um, that means you have a lot of bosses at the same time. Um, and I think one of the things with Nomad that was eye-opening was how much time can be spent in meetings when really what we want to do as chefs and as cooks is we want to be in the kitchen and we were constantly pulled out so that we can listen you know, to what other people want. What is... Uh, what does the general manager of the hotel want? What do those guests need? You know, there's 130 rooms in the Nomad. Uh, what are those guests saying? Are we giving those guests what they want? Those are, those are our, those are people who are staying in our house, right? We should put them as a priority. And we learned a lot about um, how to be a great restaurant, but also be a great host to those people that are in the hotel. Um, and I learned a lot about how to, how to manage my time effectively. And I'll be honest, with Nomad, I wasn't doing a good job managing my time. That wasn't a skill set I had. Uh, but I did learn that if I didn't do that, I wouldn't be good at any of them. I wouldn't be good at operating the business. I wouldn't be good at uh, working with um, these other partners in, a, in, in the business that I'm part of. And I also wouldn't be good at the kitchen because I wasn't manage my, managing my time properly. Since I spend almost every episode talking to a chef or a restaurateur who was previously a chef, there's a point where you have to make a decision about stepping a little bit away from the line mm-hmm. and uh, acknowledging the fact that there might be an entire day where you barely get to interact with food. Yeah. You know, you might you might do tasting, you might walk around and check on me's, and you're going to check dishes maybe as they come at the pass, but... You're not really like fully in it anymore, yeah. right? Um, at the Nomad, was there um, a turning point where you went, you know, 24 hours without having to really interact with food? And how did that how did that feel for you when you were like, you know, you that to me that's the moment when you're like the boss, boss when you mm-hmm. really have to delegate everything on down the line and hope that everything is just going to work exactly the way that you want it and that you've shown everyone to do. Was that like? Two months in, like when did that moment ever come for you at the Nomad or? Well, you know, uh, Daniel Hume was such a great, great mentor for me. And I remember him telling me that if I don't figure out how to delegate some of it off of my plate, if I don't figure out how to use the leaders that are there, one, those leaders won't grow, right? The people that are under me aren't going to be able to grow and be great future leaders. And also I'm going to burn myself out. And he was completely right. I completely ignored him. Right. I just I wanted to do everything all the time. I wanted my hands to touch everything that I possibly could put them on. Um, so with Nomad, I mean, I, I was there 100 percent. And um, was that the best choice? Yeah, because it's the one I made. Right. So did I learn that there? No. 
what are there times that I physically needed a break? I needed to go see my family. I needed to spend some time with my daughter. Yes. And those times, um, the people that were under me stepped up and they took the reins. And they did an incredible job. In the back of my head, I was constantly wondering, would it have been better if I had done it myself or if I had been there? Or did I let the team down by not being there? Or what is their perception of me as the chef if I'm not physically there with them during service? And that's still things that I battle with now. Perception is hard because uh, people in the kitchen can often only understand what they see. They don't know that you might have to answer 100 emails and that you have to go to a bunch of meetings with a bunch of investors that they will probably never meet and most likely will never have to deal with. So um, the structure that was created by working with Daniel and Will and being a part of USHG, um, that is an amazing structure. That's Mm -hmm. a really kind of great uh, school to come up in. Uh, And you then had the opportunity to jump back in um, to – another restaurant at the modern which is kind of cool that you came for cir- full circle you were chef de partie there right mm-hmm. and then you came back yeah. 10 11 years later right yeah. Yeah. as kind of an entirely new person right to a certain extent to a certain extent yes and um i'm curious what is that moment like when you've got so much under your belt and then you come back in to s- sort of the place that you started yeah uh, well, I've been at the Modern now for three years, and I have to be honest, I don't know if that's even clicked yet, like that I'm I'm actually the chef of this restaurant. Like, I don't know if it, um, it, it's incredible. I mean, working at the Modern as a cook, I remember being in awe of the space, um, being in awe of the building that it was in, uh, being so close to such incredible art. Um, unreal. So when, you know, when that became an opportunity that was even possible for me, uh, I knew it was something I needed to chase that it wasn't something I could just let, you know, float around and maybe it'll happen or maybe it won't. Um, so really incredible opportunity to step back into that kitchen. Um, in a lot of ways, it was very similar to what I'm sure it was like for Daniel Hume to come into 11 Madison Park. I took over a, a kitchen. Uh, Gabriel was still there. Uh, he was still in the kitchen. It was still operating. It was his management team. It was his cooks. It was his front of house. Uh, it was his service style. It was uh, it was an Alsatian restaurant. You know, it had a very specific feeling to it, and overall, it worked really well. It wasn't broken, mm-hmm. um, so it was a really it was a really unique restaurant to take over because uh, it needed a lot, but at the same time, it didn't need anything. Um, so it was very slow movement. Um, I think in the beginning, it was about understanding the people that were there, uh, trying to feel what they needed so that they could continue to grow. Whether it was, do you need to do you need to be taught? Do you need a mentor or do you need me to help you find a new restaurant to be part of? Because this isn't the right fit anymore. Um, And it took a long time. I would say for a full year, we were just kind of feeling out what was going on with the people there, what was going on with the guests, uh, what it was they were looking for and slowly evolving the style of food. Um, And I think around, you know, around that year two point where we started to feel like, wow, we've we've completely changed this whole restaurant. Um, we have a new general manager, we have a new wine director, we have an entirely new management team, and about 80% of our our hourly employees have turned over, and we have all new employees, and now we're at a completely different place as a restaurant. Uh, now we're ready to really start, really start putting out there what we are and what we want to be. 
since you've spent so much time in fine dining environments at a specific... I've also done a lot of other cooking. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I am just, I am so curious about the, the fine dining in New York just from a personal standpoint because I don't have much experience in it. And also, I think that today people see so much uh, weight being given to tasting menus. Mm-hmm. And I'm really curious, like, is there any part of you that thinks that part of that is uh, excessive? Is... I com- absolutely. Um, I actually have a really hard time with tasting menus. Uh, I've always believed that if I start cooking for myself, that the restaurant's going to fail. People are going to stop coming. And I think in a lot of ways, a tasting menu is more about a chef let's say myself, saying, I'm telling you what to eat. I'm telling you how to eat it. I'm telling you what succession and what timing and what composure to eat it. And I think that um, although that's a great part of our industry, I don't think that it's what is the most important to me. Um, We do serve a tasting menu. Um, I would say that close to 60% of the people that come into the modern, into the fine dining portion of the modern, do have a tasting menu. Uh, But I think that I'm most excited about a la carte. It makes me the most excited. And I think that's part of fine dining that's kind of died off is that you can have a three Michelin star restaurant that's a la carte uh, just as easily as you can have a three Michelin star restaurant that's 100% tasting menu. I think they're just different styles of, of cooking and eating. I do want to hear a little bit about dish construction. Yeah. Uh, if there's a specific dish on the menu right now that you really love, maybe there's something that's coming on soon because we're hopefully going to change seasons soon. <laughs> we keep changing back and I know, forth, yeah. Like yesterday, I was, it was spring, and now I'm going to eat like a big bowl of stew yeah. today. I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Um, is there – just quickly, can you walk us through something that you're really passionate about right now that may be on the menu or coming on the menu and – why those pieces work together. Yeah. Well, I think that, first of all, with, with food, um, with dishes going on, it's exactly what you were talking about. Um, when I uh, Sunday woke up and it was 65 degrees and sunny outside, um, what does that make me feel like inside? Like, what do I want to eat? Mm-hmm. Right? It, it shifts the way that you want to eat. And when it's cold, the same thing happens, right? What do you want? You want a hug. You want a big bowl of soup to wrap your hands on. And we try... Uh, that's probably what we focus the most on is are we cooking to what it feels like outside? Are we paying attention to what it feels like when you're when you're commuting through the city, when you're walking down Fifth Avenue on your way to the restaurant? What does your body feel like and what's going to satisfy you um, intellectually a little bit, but mostly what's going to satisfy you in your soul? And we, we pay a lot of attention to that. And I think that as food comes together, that's what we think about. Does this need to be hot today and tomorrow does it need to be cold? And do we have that flexibility with that dish where it can evolve back and forth? Um, right now, we're most excited about spring, right? Because it keeps starting and then stopping. And then all of a sudden, hey, we got 100 pounds of ramps. And now there's no ramps. And now there's nettles. And now there's no nettles. Um, so that's obviously really exciting. Uh, obviously, morel mushrooms, right, for me is such a huge part of spring, something we're really excited about. Um, but kind of across the board, you know, I, I don't think there's one thing that I'm more excited about than anything else. But, uh, you know, getting into the spring season, uh, getting that changeover is always a really hard time of the year for us because uh, it's such a dramatic change. When you start to put asparagus on the menu, do you really want to see celery root on the same menu or in your meal at some point? So making that transition fluid is, is always a lot of fun. 
let's leave the world of foie and truffles and talk about what uh, what might be appealing to you if one day you were to leave the modern kitchen down the line. Is there something that you've always wanted to cook in a certain style? Like, do you want to open up a fish shack and be in flip-flops and sell conch fritters? Kind of, right. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, is there, you know, tell us a little bit about, like, what do you eat when you're not at work? And if you weren't at the modern in 5, 10, 15 years, mm-hmm. what might you be doing? It's actually a great question. I, I can't answer that because I don't know. And I think that's actually great. I'm happy that I don't know. If I knew, then maybe I'd be confused about what I was doing now. But I actually I think about that a, a lot about um, as, as a chef, we don't really retire. right? We never really stop. But what is it that we're going to do when our knees don't work as well anymore? and we can't stand on our feet for 15 hours a day, what is that future? Um, and I don't know what that is for me, but it could be all of those things, or maybe it's some of them in little bits of time. Um, yeah, sure, working on the beach sounds great. You know, Would I want to do that for a long period of time? Probably not. I'd get bored. Um, I love fine dining. It's definitely where, where my heart is right now, is in the fine dining world. Uh, and when it shifts, it'll shift. And like I said, I've done lots of different things in my career and kind of as, as it's been exciting to me, it's been something that I've done. And when it's not exciting anymore, then you do something else. I'm really fascinated about mentorship and you talked about Daniel and I assume that you speak to Danny Meyer. Um, I am curious about what you can tell me about Keith Schroeder Mm. and how he influenced you. Um, and Where'd you get that one? What? Where'd you dig that one? I up? did a little digging. You did a little digging. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious uh, if not him, is there someone else who, um, who you think about every day when you're in the kitchen? And um, if you can just leave us with uh, what you hope to leave your cooks with as they grow within your restaurants, and also sometimes when they leave, what co- type of things do you like to um, impart on them? Uh, well, I mean, Keith. Keith was a really, really important person for me. He was one of my instructors at culinary school. I had the opportunity to work for him um, a couple of years after graduating and a random location in California that we don't have to talk about that one. But uh, you know, Keith taught me to swallow ego and that it, there was no room for it in a kitchen or uh, in the world of chefs. And I think right now what I feel in the industry is so much ego happening. And so, I mean, you talked about tasting menus and uh, how much of um, you know a 15-course tasting menu is about ego instead of about what food is, which is love, right? It's it's community, it's love. Um, and Keith was a he was he was a great teacher for me. Um, I think now what I think about every single day is I think about my kids, I think about my family, and my um, is what I'm doing um, is it going to make them proud when they grow up? Are they going to feel proud of what of what their father did and what? Um, you know, what, what the industry has because of what we do. Um, and I think that that's, that's probably the most important part for me right now. As far as cooks go, that's, that's another huge part of it. You know, I'm, I'm really lucky to have a large crew. We have 180 on the modern team. Uh, I hope that everyone that leaves there leaves a better person than they came on. I hope they have a stronger skill set, yes, but I hope they're a better person than when they first stepped in the door. And if we've done that, then we've, we've done something really great. We've, we're starting to create a little bit of a legacy. Can you talk a little bit about the transition to uh, Union Square Hospitality Group going gratuity included? Yeah. And how that changed things at the restaurant? And, uh, you know, 
being the the leader of the restaurant and also um dealing with the emotions of the front of house and the back of house and how that interaction uh has sort of shown itself to take place as all the restaurants move into this realm within the restaurant group yeah hospitality included um that yeah, it's obviously what we call it in ushg um i think it's it's the future uh, again, I don't know if this will be the future of our industry during my lifetime in it, but um, I believe in it strongly. I believe it's the it's the right thing to do. Um, the disparity between front and back from an income perspective has just gotten, you know, I, I can say when, when I started at The Modern as a cook, uh, I was getting paid the exact same hourly rate that 11 years later I took over the restaurant, I was hiring cooks at that same rate. There was no difference in 11 years uh, in what we were starting cooks at from an hourly rate. And that's ridiculous. We know it became a lot more expensive to live in New York City over 11 years. Uh, we know that the education that cooks are getting in culinary school has gotten more expensive. Um, so why is it that there isn't more income for the cooks? At the same time, front of house has had over 110% increase. Right. So as the menu price went up because the products got more expensive, you tipped more. And they're paid more at the same time. And that doesn't go back into, uh, you know, the dishwashers aren't making more money. The baristas aren't making more money. So uh, taking that control back and saying we want to take better care of all of our employees, uh, I think was an important first step. We have a lot to learn in this process. um, And we are constantly learning. Uh, We are looking at menu pricing and constantly saying what is too much physically, like to look at the menu and look at the prices and say, "I I can't put this in print. It doesn't make sense to put this in print and finding other creative ways to to be more cost effective uh, as a business as a whole is a really important part of it. Leave me with this. Where do you like to go in New York City on your day off? What's I know that weather dictates a lot about what you eat, but what's sort of a quintessential dish that you don't really eat ever when you're at your restaurant and that you're craving when you get a day off with your to spend time with your family? I love this um, this Szechuan place on the Upper East Side. It's called Wajil. Um, just incredible. Uh, but I, I think a lot of times, that you hear, I'm sure you hear this from other chefs as well, we're like drawn to Koreatown, right? It's like maybe it's because it's open late. Maybe it's because it's fun. But it's also because it's delicious and it's accessible and we don't have to think a lot. And, um, yeah, I mean, Asian food is a big part of days off and weekends. Um, it has nothing to do with how we cook in the restaurant, uh, but it has everything to do about how we want to eat and um, it's powerful flavors, right? And it's culturally rich at the same time. Chef, thank you so much for being here and joining us. Thanks for having me. Every Tuesday, 11 a.m., join us here on Heritage Radio Network for a new episode of The Line. for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? 
rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.